Too bold was he, who in a ship so frail, first ventured on the treacherous waves to sail. And yet now, how easy a thing is this even to a timorous and cowardly nature, and questionless the invention of some other means for our conveyance to the moon, cannot seem more incredible to us that this did at first to them. And therefore, we have no just reason to be discouraged in our hopes of the like success. These are the words of John Wilkins, a theologian and natural scientist of the 17th century. In the age of expiration, he put forward a plan that, if successful, would make him an icon for all time. But unlike other explorers, he did not look to the edge of the seas for adventure. He looked to the stars in the night sky. Wilkins was a man who believed that in his day and age, it would be possible to put a man on the moon and have him return safely home, a feat that would not be completed for nearly 300 years after his idea was put forward. Hello, hello, and welcome to the first ever Jammy History Podcast, the show that will talk about events from any time, any place. This episode will talk about something that sounds unbelievable, but it is true. It's John Wilkins and his 17th century moon mission. I am your host, Jamie. If you wanted to know who's behind the annoying voice you're going to be listening to for the next 30 minutes, and I will be your guide through this extraordinary tale. Explorations into space are something that captivates the imagination of most, if not all, people on this planet. The idea that we could one day be discovering new worlds and other forms of life is an idea that forms the basis of most sci-fi stories. I know my dad in particular loves exploration and sci-fi, so I hope he especially enjoys this out-of-the-world tale I have got for him today. Before we look at his book, we must first address the question of who was John Wilkins? For a man with big aspirations, his origins were humble. He was born in a little hamlet near Northampton in 1614 as the son of a goldsmith, but he was not content with the smithing lifestyle his father had, and he instead decided to pursue the life of an academic. Wilkins moved to Oxford and graduated with a bachelor's degree in 1631. Although I was not uh, able to find anything on what Wilkins was like as a student, I like to imagine that he was the typical mad lad student. If you're proposing ideas about uh, going off to the moon, you have to have a little bit of a chaotic side. And I imagine he was the one hosting all of the ye olde parties with the bardcore tunes. His studies consisted of the usual theology and philosophy, but in addition to this was the emerging subject of astrology. Ever since Galileo pointed his telescope at the nighttime sky and revealed that medieval beliefs of the moon were wrong, there had been a rise in discussion about the moon and the cosmos as a whole. People freaked out over his revelations and became invested in the quest for truth. 
Wilkins was uh, exposed to the merging field as a result, and he clearly must have taken a great interest in it. After he received his bachelor's, he studied a master's at Magdalen Hall in Oxford in 1634. Wilkins then found himself at the crossroads of what his career should be. As a man with such a broad range of knowledge, he had plenty of esteemed opportunities lying in wait for him. But eventually he made his choice, and he decided that he would enter the church, and he was ordained a priest in 1638. It was around this time that he wrote his book on the moon, uh, but we're going to come to that later because the rest of his life is just so interesting. And it wouldn't be fair to not at least give a whistle-stop tour of everything else he got up to. After he got his master's and became a priest, he ministered for Prince Charles Louis, the nephew of King Charles I. Therefore, he also witnessed the British Civil Wars, uh, an epic clash between the king and parliament, uh, which is no doubt going to be a topic I will be covering in more detail at a later date. If you uh, follow my Instagram, then you will already know how hard it is for me to uh, shut up about the bloody civil wars. And guess what? There's no escape for you now. I can keep talking about them as much as I want on here. But uh, as for Wilkins, it was around this time that he also became the warden of Wadham College in Oxford. Then the king had an unfortunate case of loserheaditis, and Wilkins instead found favour within the Commonwealth. But how did he do this? Was he not the minister to a prince after all? Well, it is a good point, but it does help when you just so happen to be the brother-in-law of Oliver Cromwell himself after Wilkins married his younger sister, Rabina French, in 1656. Cromwell gave him a position as the Master of Trinity College in Cambridge, uh, and he did enjoy running it. Uh, but before you know it, Cromwell's dead. The Commonwealth government has fallen apart, and now there's a king back on the throne. We've completely gone back to where we had started. As you can imagine, it didn't take long for Wilkins to be demoted because, well, put it simply, no one likes friends of Cromwell. But he was allowed to keep his head, and he was allowed to carry on being a preacher in London, which he did enjoy doing until his house burned down in an unfortunate baking accident that reduced about 90% of London into ashes and ruin in just one night. In one disastrous episode of the Great British Bake Off 1666 edition, he lost his vicarage, home, and the saddest of all, his library. Rest in peace, books. You will be missed. Not only that, but he had also lost all of his scientific instruments as well, which isn't good, for your image to be a founding member of the Royal Society and not have any uh, scientific instruments to go along with it. But anyway, he got there in the end. After the fire, he moved north and he became the Bishop of Chester, which personally makes me very happy because that's my home city. I didn't realise when I'd started this that Wilkins resided in my area, and it's a shame that it's not talked about more here. But I suppose we don't want to uh, make our claim to fame a man who believed we could go to the moon in the 17th century. So, fair enough. Whilst he was the Bishop of Chester, though, he set about healing divisions within the Protestant faith by trying to find common ground between the different churches. He pushed for comprehension between the different religious sects and what you refer to as toleration for the rest. 
If easing tensions in the church was not a big enough task, he also managed to find enough spare time to just invent a new language that he called real character. Uh, and the goal of it was to replace Latin as the universal language of academics, but then also become the universal language of tradesmen and merchants alike. I did look at real character whilst researching this episode, and oh boy, is it a weird language. Excuse the tangent we're going to go on here, but I've got to talk about this. Instead of it being a phonetically based language, where letters correspond with sounds, it is instead a persigraphy, where each symbol directly represents a concept. He divided the language into 40 main concepts he called genera. Each genera would then be divided into subgroups called differences, and then differences would be divided into species. As if that wasn't complicated enough, he also insisted that every word must have, well, it must consist of four syllables. The best way to explain this is just to give you an example, because even as I'm trying to write this out, it makes me very confused, this language. So let's just say that you wanted to say dogs, the, the best thing on the planet, dogs. The first two syllables would be, well, would come from the genera to show which category the word belonged to which in this case would be Z, which is the category of beasts. Then you would take the next syllable from the differences section, which altogether would be Zit, which means beasts of the dog kind. And then finally, you would take the final syllable from the species section, which altogether would be Zeta. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't feel like most people will be versed uh, in real character at this point, so I'm just going to go with it. But Zeta means the species of dogs. And there you have it, a language that's definitely very easy to learn, and it totally took off, and no one ever spoke Latin again, or at least that's what I wish happened. Instead, no one cared about this stupid language he had invented with its weird rules, and they just kept doing what they normally had done anyway. Who knows? Maybe it would have taken off if Wilkins had more time to argue about it. But alas, he sadly did not, as he died in London in 1672. Most likely caused from the very medicines that he was using to treat his kidney stones. But now I'm going to, yeah, well, we've reached the end of this whistle-stop tour of Wilkins' life, and I'm going to bring you back to 1638 to talk about the reason you're all listening in, which is the moon. When you first glance at his book, A Discovery of a New World, you would probably assume that this text is about the discovery of America, not a text about the moon. And just to make sure that statement was correct, I showed it to my mum, and that's what she thought the book was about. Um, but on closer inspection, you realise the true subject of this text. Note how the book was called The Discovery of a New World, the emphasis on world. This may seem like a simple choice of words, but it is the crux of Wilkins's belief that the moon was not just a rock in the sky, but a planet with an unknown nature or climate. Only by visiting this new planet could the questions of what it was like be answered. For nearly 200 pages, he details his beliefs on the moon, its structure, its atmosphere, and its inhabitants. 
When I started reading this, I thought I'd be in for about 200 pages of a madman rambling ideas on moon people and proposing bootlegged methods of getting there. But as I read it, I couldn't help but feel that his ideas were logical. Now, don't get me wrong, there was plenty of wacky ideas inside this book, yet surprisingly, a lot of it made a weird amount of sense, and I realised that it would be unfair if I only focused on his moon mission and not discuss the rest of the ideas he had about the moon. And so now I will guide you through the entire book as well, and see if you can agree with some of his logic. The book begins with what many scientific texts at the time had to include, and that's three chapters of the author basically going, I am not a heretic. The danger with writing a scientific text in this age is that some scientific conclusions could be interpreted as heresy. In a recent visit I made to the Tower of London, I saw astrological carvings done by a man called Hugh Dewey from Bristol, and he was suspected of sorcery. Despite their differences, both Protestants and Catholics could be equally as ruthless as suspected heretics. The danger with the idea of the moon being its own inhabited planet is that their existence was not mentioned in the Bible. Were Adam and Eve really the first people God made? Or were these moon people an unknown part of the design? Uncertainty can be scary for many. This wasn't even a solely Christian attitude to moon theories. The ancient Greek philosopher uh, Anaxagoras was exiled for claiming that the moon was a rock instead of a god. Wilkins felt like he needed to clarify his intentions at every possible moment. He also felt the need to point out repeatedly that he's not stupid, and that he has put a lot of time and thought into these ideas. I'm not sure whether he feared being mocked for suggesting ideas or not, but it's interesting how Wilkins felt the need to remind the reader of his intellect. It seems that the two worst things you could be accused of as an academic is being stupid or being a heretic, or worse, both. He did not spend all of his time partying to Bardcore at Oxford University just to be called a moron. No, 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 he was at the height of education, and he wanted to make sure that everyone was aware of that. He then moves on to talk less about theology and more on the moon itself, starting off with this mega-revelation in a chapter he titles that the moon is a solid, compacted, opacious body. That's right, you've heard it here first. The moon is indeed solid. It's not a liquid. It's not hollow. Get out of here with those weird ideas of yours that you're bringing here. Not only that, but he goes on to explain how the world does not produce any of its own light but it instead reflects the light of the sun back to the earth. Although this idea is not quite as outlandish as there being moon people, it is an idea that does contradict his religious beliefs. In the book of Genesis, it says that God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars, implying that the moon was its own source of light, it, not the stars. Did Wilkins realise that he had made a contradiction? Was he just trying to rationalise his views and believe that there was no contradiction at all? Maybe the lesser light mentioned is just the reflected light from the sun. This might explain even further why he felt the need to put three chapters in on how his thoughts cannot be labelled as heresy, because he knew that someone would view it that way, and he was just covering his bases in advance. But it is at this point 
that we reach the main crux of his entire book. Proposition 6 reads that there is a world in the moon, hath been the direct opinion of many ancient with some modern mathematicians, and may probably be deduced from the tenets of others. Now, the use of the word in would imply that the moon is hollow and that this world lies beneath its surface. But as he previously established, the moon is solid. Therefore, this world he speaks of is one that can be observed on the surface. But how? If you look up at the moon through a telescope, you can't see anything that is obviously a planet. It's just a barren grey wasteland. Well, that's where Wilkins would say you're wrong. It only appears that way because of the reflected light. What can be observed are not merely craters, but islands, seas, and continents. This was an idea shared by astrologers other than Wilkins. Polish astronomer Johannes Hevelius drew a collection of maps of the moon where he labelled the craters and spaces as islands and seas. One of the seas was given a name I feel we will all have heard of at some point, uh, known as the Sea of Tranquility, where over 300 years later, the historic achievement of putting a man on the moon would occur. If you were to look at the moon through a telescope, you can understand where Wilkins was coming from. There is a contrast between the dark patches and the bright ones, which would indicate a contrast between the seas and the land. But when Wilkins looked up at the moon, he did not just see land, but high mountains, deep valleys and spacious plains. Here we see arguments that are logical in their nature. The differences in shades of light on the moon are caused by the shadows created by mountains. He even provides diagrams explaining his theories on the moon. But what I find interesting about Wilkins' theory is an idea he explores in Proposition 11, that as their world is our moon, so our world is their moon. He believed that this unexplored world, with people and lands that we had never been to before, was vital to our very existence. We cannot survive without the moon, and we are just as necessary to their survival. There is, therefore, a binary existence, with two worlds living in harmony with each other, almost like a yin and yang situation. The image of yin and yang is a good one to bring up at this point, as Wilkins suggested that these worlds are polar opposites to each other. When it is summer here, it is winter there. We can see the moon at night simply because it is day over there. Wilkins clearly must have perceived it as the polar opposite to ourselves which begs the question over what the theoretical inhabitants of the moon were like. Were they the opposite to humans in mind, in body, in soul? Are they little more than beasts who don't know God? Or are they the pillars of virtue and piety, making us the monsters God turned his back on? Since Adam and Eve were evicted from the Garden of Eden, maybe we failed where the moon people did not. Believing in the existence of aliens is one thing, Uh, And it's something that I myself believe in. But to believe that the aliens that are out there are the polar opposites to ourselves brings out a whole new set of questions. Not just about what they are like, but about how we perceive ourselves. So, does Wilkins have an idea of what these moon people are like? The answer is simply no. He has no idea as to their nature or their appearance. When faced with such a set of existential questions, it makes sense to admit the fact that you just don't know. He does, however, speculate, and he suggests that they are similar to ourselves in that they are made in God's image. 
and that they too bear a sin like Adam and Eve did, though he elaborates to suggest that it is a different kind of sin that they have, that they had committed. It could just be that he didn't want to acknowledge the idea that the moon people could be superior to ourselves, and so opted for a more comfortable image, where these people are just like us, though not completely similar, with some small differences. But even if he could get to the moon, how would we be able to communicate with these beings? It's a good question, really. Maybe Wilkins had this question in mind when he was devising his language real character. That's right, we're bringing it back! As he believed he would be creating a simple language that anyone could learn around the world, it's not too outlandish to suggest that these moon people could also learn to speak real character. At the very least, it would be better than trying to teach them Latin. But the questions he raised about its inhabitants could only truly be answered by going to the moon itself. But if only if Wilkins suggested a way to get up to the moon, that would be nice, wouldn't it? But, oh yeah, he did! When faced with the question of how to actually get to the moon, Wilkins suggested that the best way to do it would be for us all to pile up, well, at least not everyone on the planet, but a group of people, uh, to get into a large flying chariot and float our way up to the moon. That was the plan. That was the plan in a nutshell. Could you imagine if Neil Armstrong rocked up to the launch pad for Apollo 11 and he just sees a wooden chariot there with Buzz Aldrin on it yelling, hop on in boys, we're going to the moon. It just wouldn't fly in both senses of the word. Let's not even talk about the ideas of re-entry, which would definitely turn into a spectacle as the chariots of fire crashed back into ground. But credit where credit's due, there is actually some logic in this idea. Wilkins doesn't explain the specifics of how his chariot works, but he does make considerable references to how birds fly, and similar observations led to the creation of the plane nearly 300 years later. Wilkins explained how in the Earth's atmosphere there is a magnetical natural attraction that he called gravity, and it keeps people on the ground. That's right, someone better tell Newton that he was late to the gravity party because Wilkins had already beaten him to it. Of course, Wilkins didn't write any more about the specific laws of gravity, but I find it really cool that other people believed in gravity pre-Newton. It's not as if Newton showed up and then suddenly everyone knew about gravity. It was an already established idea. Wilkins explained how if you could reach a certain height, and pass through this spherical barrier, you could simply float to the moon. Now, this does mean that you'd have to eyeball the landing to avoid missing the moon, but Wilkins does believe this to be possible. He compares travelling to space to floating in a river, where if a certain level of buoyancy is achieved, you are not pulled down by gravity to the bottom of the floor. Therefore, keeping the chariot light was an essential component to the journey, Now, of course, with any moon mission, there are certain questions that need to be addressed. How long would it take to reach the moon? How many supplies would need to be brought for the journey? How many astronauts, well, how are the astronauts supposed to survive in an environment devoid of the very thing we need to survive? All of these are good questions, and Wilkins does his best to address them. 
if his flying chariot was able to break past the field of gravity, then he believed it would take a minimum of 180 days to aimlessly float the mere 240,000 miles of space and land on the moon. It clearly takes a lot longer than the three days it takes a modern day spacecraft to reach the moon. So you can just imagine how much food the crew would have to bring just to survive the trip going. Never mind the return journey. And so how many supplies do you think Wilkins believes you should pack? I'm going to give you a little bit of time to think of uh, your own estimates. If you were going up to space on a 180-day-long journey with no chance of being resupplied on the way, how much do you think you yourself would have brought? If you're the madman who just said no, no supplies whatsoever, then congratulations, you're one of, well, you are of the same mind that he was, and you also should uh, get something looked into that, because I'm concerned about that. But that's right. You won't be needing any uh, supplies where you're going, because all you need to do is simply hibernate like animals in winter for the 180 days of travel. It therefore makes food an unnecessary commodity that would add weight onto the chariot. He argues that as you would have passed the gravitational field, you would be completely weightless, and therefore free from the need to move about, therefore making uh, eating uh, an unnecessary activity. Of course, he does say that if it was needed, then they could bring some food with them, though clearly not the amount of food that we would probably be expecting. And uh, air would also not be an issue, because he believed that there was an ethereal air in the space between the Earth and the Moon. Obviously, it would be a hard idea to accept back then that there was just an empty space, so Wilkins filled that space with a very thin air that could sustain humans on although he did say it might be a bit uncomfortable. So, did Wilkins ever attempt this moon mission? The answer is sadly no. Or at least, not that we know of. He clearly wrote this book with the intention of getting investment for his pet project, but maybe no one did invest. And if they did invest, maybe it went so wrong that uh, they just covered up the results and vowed to never speak of it again. Despite this, Wilkins did clearly remain interested in the subject of space and going to the moon, as he republished his book on the subject a couple of times, perhaps hoping to revive interest in the expedition. But it's a shame that no one we know of at least attempted the journey, because it would have been one hell of an expedition, that's for sure. If someone ever does invent time travel, can they please take me back to this period so I can be the 17th century astronaut that he was looking for? So, Wilkins never got the moon mission that he had so strongly pushed for. But I feel that if he did somehow make it to the moon, he would be disappointed by the reality of what it was like. There is no world of opposites, a short flight from the Earth, but a barren rock that none could hope to survive on. But whilst I was reading his work, I couldn't help but admire Wilkins' vision. For in an age where humans were starting to explore the Earth and encounter each other for the first time, he saw the future of humanity going off into the stars. If there were new lives and cultures to be found here, 
then surely there must be more to see out there. Wilkins would have made a great Star Trek character, that's for sure. And so, to end this podcast, I thought I'd read the final paragraph in his book, an extract that really reveals how much Wilkins had envisioned for the future of space travel and the future of humanity. So that by this means, tis easily conceivable how once every year a man might finish such a voyage, going along with these birds at the beginning of winter, and again returning with them at the spring. And here, one that had a strong fancy were better able to set forth the great benefit and pleasure to be had by such a journey. And that whether you consider the strangeness of the person's language, art, policy, religion of those inhabitants, together with the new traffic that we brought thence. In brief, do but consider the pleasure and profit of those later discoveries in the Americas, and we must needs conclude this to be inconceivably beyond it. But such imaginations as these I shall leave to the fancy of the reader. Thank you very much for listening to the first ever Jammy History Podcast. I do hope you have enjoyed it. If you did, then please be sure to leave a rating and share the podcast. I'd greatly appreciate you doing so. Also, make sure to check out my Instagram at Jammy History. I post history content on that regularly. I also have a Twitter of the same name, but that is more of a barren wasteland and you don't need to go on it. Join me next time where we will be looking at the battle that made England, a tale of Vikings and Saxons. See you next time.